Hollywood strategy is a more glamorous version of what every business needs to do. Focus on where to play and how to play. But a cohesive plan can often elude us. Today's guest is a Hollywood mega entrepreneur with an amazing story whose journey gives us a peek behind the curtain into his secrets for success. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, helping you see business issues hiding in plain view that matter to your bottom line. Welcome to Business Confidential Now. I'm your host, Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, and I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Larry Namer to the show today. His entertainment and media credentials are pure platinum. He is an entertainment industry veteran with close to 50 years of professional experience in cable television, live events, and new media. Larry is a founding partner in Maytan Global Entertainment Group, a venture created to develop and distribute entertainment content and media specifically for Chinese-speaking audiences in China and abroad. More recently, he was appointed Chief Operating Officer of FanVestor, an innovative data-driven ecosystem for celebrities, brands, and their fans to become an investor and access exclusive experiences and rewards. While Maytan and FanVestor may not be household names to you, the E! Entertainment Television Network no doubt is, and that's Larry's baby too. He co-founded it, and some baby, it is now valued at over $4 billion U.S. dollars. Now, those three projects are just a small sample of his amazing portfolio of work. Along the way, he's received tremendous accolades and won prestigious awards that are too numerous to mention. The show would be over. We'd be packing up and going home if I listed them all. So, suffice it to say, that it is an honor and a privilege to have him join me today. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, Larry. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great. Now, you have a remarkable talent and eye for identifying opportunity. Uh, So so I've been told nobody could ever quite figure out why. So, but uh, (laughs) yeah, for some reason, it's been, uh, it's kind of been following me around all my life from literally when I got out of college and got into the cable business to, you know, being an early on in interactive TV and that I was in Russia and before anybody realized that it was, you know, no longer the Soviet Union and then China and now I'm in fintech and a bunch of other things. So, yeah, I uh, have an uncanny ability for being there before everybody else. Which is wonderful. You not only identify the opportunity, you drive a truck through it. And I I mean that in a good way because you take it from point A to B. You know, with E! Entertainment, you recognize the desire for celebrity gossip and, and made it happen. With Maytan Global, you're embracing technology, recognizing content goes over multiple uh, distribution channels, and the U.S. is no longer dominant when it comes to creating content. It's uh, great stuff is happening all over the world. And with the uh, Fanvestor, you're, you're blending crowdfunding platform with entertainment and an opportunity for fans to participate. And I, if I ask you how you do it, I know that's too broad a question, so let me phrase it this way. What factors do you zero in on before greenlighting a project? What are your priorities? Well, I, you know, I look at stuff, and I, I, I'm a voracious reader. I read uh, God, probably 50 mag- I read everything online, but probably 50 magazines a month on just every imaginable subject. And uh, <clears throat> I'm on the, you know, I do web research a lot and stuff. So I, I basically look for, um, 
you know, things that I think may not be disruptive today, but, you know, if the technologies or, or the geography continues the way it's been going, uh, will become disruptive. And then I kind of focus in on those, like when I decided, you know, Russia, I was looking at the Soviet Union still and realized that, uh, you know, no matter how much we did our anti-communist, you know, their boogeyman in the closet kind of stuff, that that was going to go away and that there'd be, you know, tremendous economic opportunities there. Um, and then, you know, pretty much the same thing with China. When I got into China, which was 11 years ago, um, <clears throat> everybody thought that, you know, they're going, why are you bothering with China? It's, it's nothing in the entertainment business. And if you look at just film business there, you know, at, you know 11 years ago, it represented 1% one plus, one of the world market. 11 years later, it's now the number one movie market in the world. It's a, this year, it went by the U.S. in terms of movie markets. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff I look for is, you know. And then, you know, the other thing that I always apply, and I'll, I'll use his name in vain, you know, Rupert Murdoch, I look at things and go, okay, where can I, as an independent, be on the same plane or higher than the Rupert Murdochs of the world? And when I say Rupert, I mean him and Time Warner and Disney and Fox. You know, eventually the big guys are going to recognize it. How do I get my foothold in those markets before they really get in there and, and try and bury me? How do I survive through it? So those, those are the kind of things I look at. So have your priorities changed over the years? Uh, I No, I, I wouldn't say. I, I like being, uh, I've always looked to be at the forefront of stuff. Um, uh, you know, and that's kind of a priority. I'm more driven with achievement than I am necessarily with, with the money side of it. Uh, thank God for E that, you know, you do one E in your life. You don't have to really do much else. Uh, the money side is taken care of. So you're really doing the things that uh, you love and you could take chances that are, that are, you know, some people think are a little crazy, but you you could do it when you have that kind of freedom. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd like to dive a little deeper. Um, Hiccups often happen in a planning process. Nothing ever is quite perfect, no matter how we go about it. Are there certain areas in, in the planning process that you find are more vulnerable than others? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, I have this great belief that, uh, and this is like one of my underlying things, is that in a year from now, all the things that I thought today, I'm going to smack myself in the head and go, what in the heck were you thinking? <laughs> um, so even with all these companies, what I try and do is create structures where I just bring in the greatest, smartest people and don't put them in a box that they can't get out of, you know, give them the, the flexibility so that they can adjust on a dime. And, <clears throat> you know, unfortunately, that's one of my biggest beefs with business schools is, you know, they, here's the textbook, here's what to follow. And unfortunately you follow the textbook and you're pretty much, you know, going to be in the bankruptcy court pretty soon. Uh, you, you have to have that flexibility because everything will change. How, you know, uh, technology will change. People's uh, interest in how they consume media will change. How in the world could you have predicted the pandemic? But those people that weren't confined by these rigid business structures figured a way to adapt and figured a way to survive. 
those people that were stuck in those structures to go, oh, no, this is the way we do things. I mean, those people are hurting, and they will continue to hurt because, I, you know, in many cases, it's not going back to what it was. Absolutely. So flexibility, and really what you've described is, is tremendous leadership ability. It's one thing to create the structure, but then letting go to let others carry the vision forward. Yeah, and, and don't put them in a position that they, you know, that they're, they're stuck in. You know, I, I've had this conversation with somebody recently where, you know, <clears throat> very big, you know, business school, you know, went to business school and got the MBA, I think two MBAs, and, you know, and uh, they look at agreements and they go, well, where are the KPIs, you know, in the, you know, in somebody's employment agreement? And I'm going, you know, if you put these rigid KPIs in, on a startup, and I'm not saying you don't do it with mature, I mean, with mature businesses, very different. But on a startup, if I put in KPIs in a certain way, that executive, even though the business logic tells you to do something different, their bonus and their employment is based on meeting those KPIs. So that's what's going to drive them, not what's good for the business and say, hey, you know what, we don't need to do this, we really need to do that. If you're stuck in having to do X, Y to get your, your annual bonus or keep your job, typically that's what people will do. So, you know, uh, in startups, I'm a real uh, kind of anti-KPI person. Uh, again, not, not in mature. I, in mature, 100%. But in startups, sometimes they come back to bite you in the butt. Now, that's a good philosophy to have because it's amazing how incentive structures, even in mature businesses, can sometimes drive behaviors that are not always in the best interest of the organization. Absolutely. You know, in, 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 particularly in startups, you don't have a lot of history. So right. uh, you don't really have predictability. You can't say, you know, you should be selling, you know, uh, next year's sales should be 1.1 times higher or whatever it is. There's really no history to it. So whatever the KPIs are, they're basically totally arbitrary, you know. Uh, so um, I think you could establish some rough benchmarks that people need to do. But I wouldn't, again, it's why put them in a box that they're going to, you know, be stuck in when the, the environment tells them they really need to change directions. So let them have that flexibility. Awesome. Yeah, and and if they don't do it wisely, you get rid of them and you get smarter people. But, you know, hire the best, smartest people you can. Hire people that are, you know, in each individual area actually smarter than you. I mean, you may be the overall broad person. You know, may have to lead them. But, yeah, just hire incredibly smart people and, you know, you either trust them and they do it and, or they disappear. Yeah, one way or the other, they disappear. (laughs) Definitely. All good, all good. So let me ask your advice about this. How could your approach to strategy be transferred to Main Street businesses? I think it does. I mean, particularly if you look at startups, I think, you know, my advice, you know, pretty much holds true there. And then, uh, you know, if you look at more established businesses, uh, again, the times are changing so quickly so quickly and technology changes the consumer behavior changes and stuff like that it's really the think through structures always be looking for you know where do i want to be next year what do i want to be in three years what do i want to be in five years but realize that 
you know, making hard conclusions and just being rigid is going to put you in a place that you're probably going to regret. So, you know, to me, with all the changes that are going on in the world and the changes to come, I mean, I think COVID is just, you know, made people rethink stuff from soup to nuts, create business structures that allow for this flexibility. It's forced people to rethink things. And even when things get back to, and I'm going to, you know, put quotes around it, normal, whatever the new normal is going to be, they're going to keep some of those new features because they realize that customers, their clients, their their marketplace likes these things, and it's an additional revenue stream. So these are all kind of good developments, even though it's been uh, baptism by fire, so to speak. Yeah, and, you know, you just look at certain things. I mean, I'll give you an example. I'm out in L.A., and um, I always wondered why L.A. never took advantage of, A, the coastline, the beach, the gorgeous weather all the time, and stuff like that. And I go, you know, all these restaurants can go inside now because they're forced to do outdoor, outdoor dining. Quite not, I'm going, this is the way you should live in L.A. We should be doing outdoor dining because we could do it 11 months out of the year. Uh, you know, so things like that change. Then when you look at um, just offices, I mean, I would hate to own commercial buildings in, in, in inner cities now because it used to be, where, you know, all your employees had to report the work every day at a certain time and stuff. And now you realize that, you know, sometimes they don't have to report to an office at all. They could work virtual and sometimes they only need to report one or two days a week and you could put them on shifts and you could probably shrink the amount of space you rent dramatically. So, you know, I think you'll see offices shrink, you know, where, where people actually have to go to, um, and, and then you just look at, you know, how, where people live. People pick a place to live that's typically close to where they work. Well, so that forces you. So you, you would live in New York City and pay crazy high rents and whatever. But now, if you're working virtual, you can move to Connecticut. So you're going to find all these apartments. And you see it now. My friends tell me, you know, the apartment uh, world in New York a lot of empty apartments and prices have come way down. And I've heard as much as 30%, you know, in terms of rent. So all of this stuff is changing. And then you look at the business opportunities there, you know, the the rise of Zoom. What was Zoom before the pandemic? I mean, well, I used to use it and I know a few other people, but it was not like part of your everyday life. But so now you've got Zoom and Microsoft Teams is caught up and, uh, Google Google Meeting Place and all those things. So and and it's not done. There's still going to be so much innovation in that vir- work from home, virtual workplace kind of stuff. It's definitely exciting time for sure. One way or the other, <laughs> whether you go into it with anxiety yeah, or you're embracing it, right? Yeah, there's there's a you know uh, there is a silver lining, and while the pandemic is horrible in just every way imaginable. Uh, it has created opportunities with things like I told you, even like the newest thing I'm involved in, which is called FanVestor, which is where fans can invest in the businesses or the careers of their favorite celebrities. Um, <clears throat> before the pandemic, if I would talk to a, man, a music manager and suggest that their music artist get involved in real estate or in developing a clothing line or a fragrance line or, 
you know, anything like that, the response I would get, they go, Larry, look, we're really busy. That's not the way we do things. Well, you know, for the first few months, that's kind of the attitude. It's that it's not the way we do it. Uh, everybody thought this would end a lot quicker. Now all these managers and lawyers and agents are looking at it and going, oh, my God, you know, it's going on longer. And it's probably not the last time we're going to have a bump in the road like this. And while my acts may not be terribly worried because they got a ton of money in the bank, if my acts aren't working, if my bands can't do concerts and tours and festivals, I don't get any commission and I can't pay my mortgage. So now all of a sudden, you know, all these folks are calling me back and going, hey, you remember that thing you were telling us about, you know, is that still open? Can so-and-so still do a clothing line and, you know, things like that. So it's really, you know, it's major, major changes in, in the businesses today and the businesses that will be tomorrow. The one thing that's constant, right? The change. Yep, absolutely. And that's kind of the thing is just keeping your head that what's, what's, you know, the situation is today will most probably not be the situation a year from now. Right. So, you know, you, you said at the beginning of this interview that you you just always had an eye for this type of stuff. What type of, of personal habits do you think have contributed to your success? Um, well, according to my friends, it's like when my mother actually did drop me on my head when I was a year old. Uh, and true, when I broke my arm and stuff, and according to my friends, that's kind of the, the way everything else happened is uh, it was something affecting my brain. But um, I just I'm a vor- voracious reader. I read everything. And I'm, cur- I'm curious. I have an unbelievable curiosity. So, you know, I, I read uh, magazines on, uh, you know, crocheting and stuff like that. Uh, you know, not forever, but I'm going, you know, if I'm going to do a TV show and I got to show somebody crocheting, I got to understand that crocheting thing. So I'll read those things. I, I've never fired a gun in my life, but I read firearms books. And so I just read and read and read and read and, and then pay attention to, uh, uh, you know, I watch a lot of news, but not necessarily U.S. news. Like I like to see the way other countries are presenting or analyzing the news that we we get here and stuff because it's very different uh you know you look at the our election and you look at the way it's being reviewed in china and russia and uk even um the reporting is just so much different and i think you really do have to have a worldview now you can't have a u.s centric view anymore it's just it's those days are over just absolutely over Yes, the foreign point of view is always fascinating, and we're just such a huge country here. I, I think we, we kind of go native when in reality um, we're so interconnected, and how other people see us around the world and their perspective is really fascinating. I, I definitely yeah, appreciate I think, what you're saying. I think it's, you know, the U.S., we got incredibly spoiled um, when the Soviet Union fell apart. It was... Um, you know, that the, the big threat disappeared and uh, we realized it was not a threat and we basically controlled the world. We could do whatever we want. We were the center of the universe. And, uh, you know, every Eastern European girl wanted to marry an American guy or come to America. 
you know, we just enjoyed this incredible time. And, and we, we as a country didn't realize that this is not a forever thing, you know, and then you have the emergence of China and, you know, the days where we control everything are gone. And I mean, that's one of the, the things that Americans are struggling with is the fact that we're no longer the center of the universe. And there are other countries out there, uh, China being one, but, you know, you know, Vietnam and India and all these places are coming up and, you know, we're going to have to learn. It really is a global environment and, you know, we're part of the human race and not just, you know, we're not just Americans anymore. That's right. But I think if, if we embrace it, we'll all realize we're going to be all richer for it. So, And I don't mean that in a monetary sense, but in terms of different points of view and what we can learn from each other. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely important. If you had to start your entrepreneurial journey over again, what would you do differently or wish that you knew then that you know now? Well, I, you know, I, I would have uh, I spent my first 10 years at Time Inc. working for other people, uh, which was a great training ground, but I probably should have started thinking of doing my own stuff a little bit earlier. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I certainly caught up. <clears throat> and um, uh, just, yeah, just the whole idea of flexibility, going into things and going, my idea is so good and you know, and, and just sticking with things too long, I think is the biggest problem that I've had. And I think one of the biggest problems entrepreneurs have today. Um, quite honestly, I get up in the morning, I have 10 new ideas. By the time I go to sleep, at least nine of the 10, I realize were really dopey uh, and impractical. But I'm now, I'm now, and this happened with age, smart enough to go, okay, thought it was good, didn't work, next. Um, most people hang on too long and they spend, you know, the, the thing that you have that's finite is time. You, you know, we've got a, a, a lifetime that's set, however it's set, and we need to maximize the use of all the time we have. So even just because you have a good idea, it may have seemed like a good idea, but ego has you hold on to it, even to the point where logic would tell you it's no longer valid or it wasn't such a good idea to begin with. Um, so the greatest strength that I've learned as I got older is the ability to let go and go, you know what, thought it was good. Now I see it's not time to cut loose and move on. And I don't waste time on things that, you know, where I'm fighting for, to keep hold of something because my ego makes me do it. That is good advice. Uh, cause I know I've done that myself, I held on to things for too long where I should have let go sooner and made a pivot to something yep. else. So definitely it's, it's easy to fall prey to that. What do you think was the best piece of business advice that you ever got? You know, I worked at when I actually, when I was in Manhattan Cable and I worked for, you know, as part of timing family, I worked for a guy named Nick Nicholas and Nick went on from Manhattan Cable to become the president of Time Inc. and then Time Warner and stuff. And, you know, he taught me, you know, I just kind of watched him and the way he did it. He was really tough, but he was always fair. Uh, he was demanding, you know, for performance and stuff, but you could never look at him and say that he wasn't fair in what he, in how he dealt with things. So, you know, that saying firm but fair was one. The other thing I learned from him is time management. 
Um, when I first moved into management, and he recruited me to move from being a union guy to being a management guy. Um, you know, he one of the things he did, if you sent him something, he wouldn't necessarily act on it right away. He would put it in a drawer. And one day I asked him, I said, why do you do that? He goes, because 90% of the stuff people send me, in a week from now it doesn't matter to them anymore. So unless they come back, he goes, I don't waste my time dealing with it. And, you know, I realize it's absolutely true in, you know, People send you stuff and whatever, and then next week it's just not that important to them, but yet you're working on it and things like that. And then also phone calls. Just, again, it's a lot of time management. I very rarely answer the phone for people. I mean, my kids have my emergency number and stuff like that, but I find whatever I'm working on and I get a phone call, it's people change my priorities and my agenda to they, to deal with what they want to deal with at that time so i just have a thing with everybody i go look if it's an emergency yeah i'll talk to you on the phone but short of that send me an email and i promise you that i will never ever go to sleep without answering all my emails and i and i've stuck to that i don't make a difference how long i stay up i answer every email and people are now used to the fact that you know I'm not going to answer the phone, but if you send me an email, you will get an answer that day. That is great time management, and you've trained them well, which is kudos to you. Uh, yeah, after a while, I get used to it. They, they begin to realize, <laughs> and, and the thing is, you've got to stick with it. So, right. you know, once they see that, every email they send gets answered, like, immediately. Uh, but every phone call, you know, I tell people, I said, look, if you leave a message for me, maybe I'll answer you in three days. But if you send me an email, I will answer it today. So they just do it. Well, that's great advice. So to those folks that are listening, decide what your preferred method of communication is. If it's a phone call, fine. If it's email like Larry, fine. Let people know. And it's one way to streamline your day and and reduce those interruptions, which is other people constantly asking you to do what they want instead of what you want. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, Larry, thank you so much for joining me today. You have been very generous in sharing your wisdom and your time, and I deeply thank you. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you. That's our show for today, but don't go anywhere. I have a really easy ask for you. Would you please open your podcast app and give us a five-star review and leave a comment about what you love most about the show? I do read them all, and it'll take you less than a minute. And while you're at it, share this episode. Tell someone about it, because the best way to grow our audience is by word of mouth. And if you want the detailed show notes, links to connect with my guest, or cool stuff that we talked about, or even if you want to ask a question or have a show idea, come on over to businessconfidentialradio.com. I'll catch you on the next episode, and in the meantime, have a great day and an even better tomorrow.